0: We'll open up with me this morning to the book of Romans, in chapter 8. The book of Romans, in chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use one in the seats in front of you. This morning, we are coming to verses 3 and 4 of Romans, chapter 8. I'd like us to start reading in verse 1, because verses 1 through 4 fit together. Remember... Paul is a very logical person. Uh, he was never the kind to play on people's emotions and feelings. He, he addresses the mind. He reasons with people. He, he makes arguments in which one statement connects to the next statement. Paul was not at all anti-emotions. Uh, in fact, in this very letter, there are moments in which he very obviously is overcome With a sense of joy and with a sense of gratitude and he he worships. And I've already said that I think these four verses ought to be read in that way. That Romans 8 verses 1 through 4 reflect Paul's joy in Christ. Chapter 7 ended on a bit of a discouraging note talking about the Christian's battle with, with sin. And so now for his sake as well as for our sake Paul reminds us of the gospel in which we stand. And so, these are not cold propositions. These these statements that he makes are full of joy. But they are propositions. They are reasonable statements. They are making a logical argument in which each verse connects to the next. And so we need to read them together. So let's look at verses 1-4 through together. There is therefore now no condemnation in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So how do these verses go together? Well, verse 2 helps explain verse 1. Verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can that be? Verse 2, because the Spirit of God uses this law. It's it's the gospel. uses this gospel to change us and to unite us to Christ. And when we're united to Christ, there's no condemnation. Okay, but how can that be? How can it be that just by the Spirit, using the gospel you unite us to Christ? How does that result in no condemnation? What's what's the basis for this salvation? What is the basis for how this can be that a sinner is made right with God? And so verses three through four answer that question. Verses three and four answer the question how can this be? Or to put it differently, verses three through four answer the question what is it that God did through Jesus? So that being in Him makes all the difference. That's the theme of these two verses. What did God do through Jesus so that by being in Him we cannot be condemned? Or, think about it differently, verse 2 was about how redemption was applied to us. But verses 3 and 4 are about how that redemption was accomplished. Verse 2 was the Holy Spirit taking the cure and applying it to your life or to my life, right? The Spirit of God comes to us through the Gospel. He opens our eyes so that we believe and the redemption accomplished by Christ is applied to our souls. But in order for it to be applied to our souls, it had to already be accomplished. You can't give a cure to a dying person unless the cure has already been found and established. And so verses 3 and 4 are about how the cure was made. It's it's about the accomplishment of the redemption that was applied. So verses 3 through 4, redemption accomplished. Verse 2, redemption applied. Verse 1, glorious result, no condemnation. Now, I want us to study verses 3 and 4 by asking three questions we're going to move fairly quickly through the first two questions. And most of our study is going to be answering the third. Here are the three questions I want us to ask. First, what needed to be done so that sinners like us could have peace with God? What needed to be done? Question two, why could the law not do this? Why could the law not do it? And then number three, How did God do what the law could not do? How did God accomplish what needed to be done so that sinners like us could have hope and be saved? So that's where we're going. Let's look first at question number one. What needed to be done? And verse 4 tells us. Verse 3 says the law could not do it. Verse 3 says that God has done it by sending His Son, by condemning sin in the flesh. But what was it that needed to be done? Well, the first words of verse 4 tell us the answer. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So this is what verses 3 and 4 are all about. There is a righteous requirement of the law of God that must be met. The righteous requirement is that we be holy, blameless, perfect. We cannot be at peace with God without this. We certainly cannot have real fellowship with God and live with Him in paradise forever if we are still guilty in His sight. Habakkuk one thirteen says that our God is too pure to bear with evil in His sight. And so if we're to have God as our God, if we're to know Him and to be at peace with Him, which is the most important and wonderful thing of all, then here's what must be done. We must be blameless in His sight. We must be perfect in His sight. We cannot stand before Him guilty. And Mount Hermon, we must never compromise on this point. God's standard for the human race is not a low one. God does not compromise. God does not say, well, they are a feeble race and they have fallen, so I will lower my expectations. I will lower the bar. No. By His very nature, God will always hate every form and every degree of evil. Just like He will always love every form and every degree of good. So the bar is high. There is to be only goodness from us. There is to be no evil in us. Perfection. That is the righteous requirement of the law. And since we are sinners, condemnation. That is the righteous requirement of the law. Since we stand before God having already broken the law, the requirement is they must be punished. They must be condemned. Okay? What about the law? Can we be perfect through the law? Well, the answer that people often instinctively give is that this is how we're right with God, through our good works, through our decent living, by not being as bad as other people, by, you know, having a good reputation, by being pretty good. No, you don't have to be perfect. Just live a decent life. Be a decent human being. That is the way of the law, except that that's not what the law requires. The law requires perfection. And so this will never work for us. It, it isn't that there is anything wrong with the law. It's that there's something wrong with us. Paul says in verse 3, do you see it there in verse 3, that the law is weakened by the flesh. In other words, the law's ability to make us right with God has lost its strength. It has been weakened. Okay? So imagine Popeye, and he's got all this spinach, and he's strong, and then the, the spinach wears off, and you know, he becomes all scrawny again, right? Well, here's the law, and it's strong, and then there's us, human flesh, and suddenly the law is weak. It has no power to make us right with God. The problem's not the law, it's us. Many years ago, an elderly preacher gave this illustration he was preaching to people who lived in a rural setting and uh, most of the people had gardens like some of you do. And So here's what he said to them. He said, think about a shovel that you use when you are tilling the ground. And sometimes you get to a piece of ground that is exceptionally hard. And so you put all of your strength into the shovel. You're, you're trying to pierce the ground and go deep into it. You're putting all, all of your weight into the shovel and suddenly Crack. The handle breaks. The handle is made of wood. There's nothing wrong with the shovel itself. The shovel is made of iron. The shovel is is strong. The shovel is in perfect condition. But the handle is weak, it's it's wooden, and therefore the shovel fails. And this preacher says that's how it is with us and the law. The law itself is great. And if we were a different kind of people, we could obey the law and and we could be righteous before God through its commandments. But we are the kind of people we are. Corrupt, sinful, rebellious. We are rotten handles and therefore the shovel won't work for us. In fact, if you remember last Sunday night, we saw that when the law, by the way, the law here, just consider any command of God any command of God. When the law comes to us, our flesh responds in the complete wrong way. When a commandment of God comes to us by nature, rather than submitting to that law, rather than thanking God for that commandment and said, thank you for giving me that light into my feet and that lamp into my path, I will follow this law, human nature responds by saying, oh, here's another way that I can rebel against God. We suddenly want to do the very thing that God tells us not to do. And so Paul says in Romans 7, I would not have even known what it was to covet if I had not had the commandment come to me saying, you shall not covet. But when the sin within me heard the command, you shall not covet, the sin within me seized that command. And what did he do? He went and he coveted. That's how it is with sinful people and the law of God. Rather than the law making us more like Christ, The law just encourages our rebellion, not because of anything wrong with the law, but because of all that is wrong with us. Now, friends, it was never God's intention that the law be used as a way to be right with Him. God did not design the law to be used that way. Church, I want you to remember the three uses of the law of God. The first use of the law is to restrain wicked men so that they might not act as evilly as they would. The second use of the law is to convict people so that they see their own depravity, so that they see their own need for salvation. And the third use of the law is to guide Christians in how to live a holy life. Mount Hermon, it would be very useful to you. It would be helpful to you in your life if you memorize these three biblical uses of the law. One, to restrain wickedness. Two, to show our need for salvation. Three, to guide believers in how they are to live. But none of those three biblical uses of the law has anything to do with us using the law to be right before God. That is not a biblical use of the law. We are not to use the law in that way. Why? Because it'll never work. Why? Because of our flesh. So to summarize, what's the requirement? Perfection. We must be perfect. What did Jesus say? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, remember in the eyes of those people, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was the highest there was. And he says, you must must not only meet them, you must go beyond them. Perfection is the requirement. Okay, Paul, can we do that by the law? No. The law will never work because your flesh is fallen. And so question number three. How did God do for us what the law could never do for us? How did the how did God make it so that sinners could be right with him? Paul makes two statements here about what God did. The first one is that God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And the second one is that God condemned sin in the flesh. The rest of this Lord's Day is going to be unpacking those two statements about what God did to save sinners. So first, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Church, just stop for a moment and think about those words. God sent His own Son. What did God do to make sinners righteous? He Himself, in the form of His Son, came. Church, our predicament was no small matter to God. Your condemnation, my condemnation, was not something small that God did not pay attention to. God would have been just to ignore us. God would have been right to just have allowed us to go into the hell that we deserve. God could have rightly said, it's the house they've built, let them live in it. It's the path they've chosen, let them have the consequences. He could have been completely detached from our predicament, but He didn't do that. Think about how huge God is and how itty bitty we are like you and an ant and yet God took it upon himself to be intimately concerned with the predicament of us ants he looked upon us with love and he had compassion on us how much so he didn't look to an angel and say to an angel go handle this He sent His own Son to deal with this. To solve the problem. To find the way to make sinners right with Him. Church, there is no salvation if God does not do it. The first thing I want you to see in these verses is that when Paul talks about how salvation came about, he says the law couldn't do it, but verse 3, first two words, for God has done. The first thing to be said about the salvation of sinners is that if there's any way it's going to happen, it's going to have to be God who does it. We can't do it. Let me me give you two toothpicks and a string and tell you to make a spaceship to Mars. That's about as accurate as you finding your own way of salvation. It won't happen. We are utterly helpless. If God doesn't do it, we are lost from, from start to finish. It must be God Martin Luther said this, If any man ascribes anything of salvation, even the very least thing to the free will of man, he knows nothing of grace, and he has not learned Jesus Christ rightly. We could add this. Any part, any person who ascribes any part of salvation to the free will of man has not learned the Bible's teaching on man rightly. Because everything that Paul taught in the second half of Romans 1, all of Romans 2, the beginning half of Romans 3, all of that demands the view that you and I, in and of ourselves, are utterly helpless. Utterly helpless. Feel that. Feel yourself in the ocean. You're drowning. You look this direction. You look that direction. There is nothing to help you. It's worse than that. You get, you get sharks swimming around, right? You get, you get the, the devil and your flesh and the world, and they're swimming around you, waiting to consume you. There's, there's no light. It's pitch black dark. You are utterly helpless, drowning in this ocean. There is nothing you can do. And unless help comes from somewhere unexpected, you're doomed. And Paul says in verse 3, God has stepped in. What did God do? He sent His own Son. Hmm. Have you ever considered how God-centered the gospel really is? The gospel really is a statement about God, not about us. Uh, yes, we have to tell people that they're sinners, but that's not the good news. <laughs> that's not the gospel. Right? That's the bad news you must know in order to be ready for the gospel. But the Gospel precisely is a statement about God. That God has made atonement for sinners by sending His Son in human flesh and then condemning His Son in the flesh. He made propitiation. He made atonement. The point is, God did it. The Gospel is a message about God. Mount Hermon to understand the way of salvation rightly, you first have to stop thinking about yourself. You have to take the attention off of yourself and and turn it towards God. And you have to see that first. God made atonement for sinners through Jesus. And after you've seen that glorious truth about God, then you can say, I'm a sinner. Can that be applied to me? The Gospel begins with God. Then it turns to us. Okay. Our verse emphasizes that God sent his own son. Uh, do you remember when God called I- Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? And it's the same kind of language used here. Remember, Abraham had, had more than one son. and We think particularly of Ishmael right? Ishmael was really the firstborn of of Abraham and and we might think God was calling him to sacrifice Ishmael but no, God says to Abraham, you're going to sacrifice your son, your only son, the son whom you love, right? He he made very clear, Abraham, you're going to sacrifice Isaac, the son whom you love with this great great love. And so when we hear those words, own son, there's an Old Testament connotation to that that says, this is the son of the love of God. This is the Son whom whom has lived every moment of His eternal existence in the love of His heavenly Father. Yes, Christians, we are sons and daughters of God. We have been adopted into God's family. We have a special relationship with God. But church, our relationship with God will never be the same as Jesus' relationship with God. We are the adopted children, but Jesus, Jesus has experienced a kind of love, a kind of divine intimacy, a kind of divine fellowship with the Father that you and I can never know as creatures. We can be brought into the experience of some wonderful things, but there will always be some things that are particular to the Father and the Son of the Godhead. Jesus is the beloved Son with whom God is well pleased. There are no words that I can use to help you to feel or to imagine the depth of the love that God has for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. My words fail to express to you the love that God has for you. I mean, I I want to speak in terms of infinity when I talk to you about the depth of God's love for you. But if I talk to you in terms of infinity, then how do I describe God's love for Christ? It's like infinity upon infinity, right? It's, it's, it's beyond infinity and beyond. Kids, y'all get that, right? right? So, so that's, that's, that's the kind of love that the Father has for the Son. And yet, the Father sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus became a real human being. Mount Hermon, we must never be Arians, okay? Remember Arianism a few Wednesday nights ago? The idea that Jesus is a created being? The idea that Jesus is, is kind of like an angel? Angels are called sons of God in the Bible. So maybe when Jesus is called a son of God, maybe that's just the Bible's way of saying that Jesus is another angel. Maybe the first angel, maybe the best angel, or the highest angel. But, but either way, Jesus is a created being. That's Arianism. That's Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? it's other cults in our day. No, our Bible teaches us that Jesus is God and that God became man. Paul, even in the book of Romans, takes Old Testament verses that refer to Yahweh, Jehovah, and he quotes them in reference to Christ. He applies them to Christ. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord Yahweh. He's quoting there. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is one with God. He is a person of the Holy Trinity. He is God. And yet, He was sent and became man. And Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say that God sent His own Son. He he adds this important detail. God sent His Son in the likeness of, of sinful flesh, do you hear how carefully chosen those words are? Paul is trying to protect here us from error. He wants us to get that Jesus was truly human. He also wants us to get that Jesus was completely sinless. So he doesn't just say in flesh, okay? Because if we just said in flesh, we might think, "Oh, well then Jesus was a sinner like us." Well, no, so he's going to say in the likeness of flesh, but he wants to make clear that we understand that Jesus' body really did experience temptation, that it really did experience the effects of the curse, and so he carefully words this phrase, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in the flesh. It wasn't an illusion. Docetism, it's another thing we don't want to be, Mount Hermon, ascetics, there's, there's not... I don't think that heresy is as prominent, at least in our culture today. But you know what? Heresies don't stay down long, do they? (laughs) Every error, it may go through a lull and then it comes back. So before long, it'll come back. Uh, Docetism taught that the flesh is evil, body is evil, matter is evil, material is evil. Only that which is spirit is good. And therefore they said God would never come and become a part of matter. God would never take on true physical flesh. And so the ascetics taught that that Jesus had the appearance of flesh. That is, it was an illusion. It was something that that it it looked like He was physical, but He wasn't really physical. Kind of like you could could put your hand right through Him and pass through Him like a ghost. right? Which is what John's responding to in 1 John 1 when he says, "We, we looked at Him, we talked with Him. That which our hands have touched, we proclaim to you. We bear witness to you. We testify to you. Friends, as we're going to see, if Jesus did not become a true man, you and I are still lost in our sins. If Jesus did not become a real man, our guilt remains. Just listen to Paul's logic in these verses and you tell me if it's possible for us to be saved without Jesus being a true man. Listen to his his words. By sending his own Son... In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. You catch that? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? So that God could condemn sin in the flesh. God is going to condemn sin in the flesh. Upon whom? Upon the Son whom He sent in the flesh. Meaning if Jesus is not really in the flesh, God did not really condemn sin in the flesh. In other words, if Jesus wasn't a real man, if it was an illusion, then the cross was an illusion. And your salvation is an illusion. Maybe that heresy is not big right now. Hopefully I'm warning you about something that won't even matter in our lifetime you won't encounter. But it's encountered the church uh, over the history, so be prepared that church Jesus is God Jesus is man if you lose either one we're bound for hell That's just the fact of the matter he is God and he is man okay so why does Paul use the word likeness why does he say Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh he wasn't a descetic, he wasn't meaning an appearance an illusion so why does he say this Paul wants us to be clear that Jesus was not sinful. He came in a body like yours and mine. Jesus came in a body that was under the curse of God. Jesus experienced sickness, Jesus experienced suffering. His body would have aged. His body would have grown old. His body would have become feeble had He not been crucified first. All of these things are the results of sin. They are a part of the wages of sin that have come upon the whole human race. And so Jesus had all the marks of this on His body because He was a true human being. But Paul wants to be clear. Nevertheless, He was not Himself a sinner. He is the one Only human being who lived and did not sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was sinless. Unlike you and me, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit of God. And he was not born with the guilt of Adam. He was not born with a depraved soul. Oh, his body, his physical nature was part of this cursed world. But Jesus himself was pure and was spotless. By the way, this can mean some strange things when you think about it. What it meant that the Son of God became man even experiencing the effects of the curse. The Son of God got tired. John 4, verse 6, So Jesus, wearied as He was from His journey, was sitting beside the well. The Son of God was weary. Church, does God get weary Can God be weary? Isaiah 40, 28 Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God does not grow weary. Yet here is the Son of God, and He's weary from His walk. This is what it means that God became man. In his divinity, Jesus has never been tired. But in his humanity, he came to know what it was to be weary. Well, think about this the Son of God experienced temptation. Church, can God be tempted? What do we know about temptation? Can God be tempted? James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So God cannot be tempted. Temptation requires that there is something in you that can respond to the temptation. If I hold a cone of chocolate ice cream in front of you and say, come on, you know you want it. You know you want it. If there's anything inside of you that looks at that and and likes that, then there's temptation. If I hold a dirty baby's diaper up here, you want it. You know you want it. Are you tempted? No, because there's nothing in you that likes that. You see, God can never be tempted because there is no sin that He likes. There's nothing in Him that is drawn to any degree towards anything that is evil. And yet Jesus experienced temptation. Not that his soul was in any way sinful or fallen, but he still lived in a body. He still lived with true human nature, fallen human nature, so that when the devil came and tempted him, it wasn't a joke. There was real temptation experienced. When when the devil showed Jesus the kingdoms of the world and said it could all be His if he would just bow to Him, there was something in Jesus' humanness that was truly tempted. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, but without sin. The Hebrew writer goes on to say that this is how it is with high priests. The best of high priests, they are able to be gentle with the ignorant and the wayward because they themselves were beset with weakness. Jesus experienced real temptation as the Son of God. So church, there are several tremendous reasons why it was important that God send His Son to be a man. In our Mount Hermon Catechism, we have a question about this. I want you to hear the answer. The question is this, question 111. Why was it necessary for Christ to become a sinless man? And here's the answer. Christ's sinless humanity was necessary for the purpose of redemption so that He could be the mediator between God and man, the second Adam, the federal head of His people. Listen to this. Because God's justice requires that the same nature which has sinned also makes satisfaction for sin and that one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. So in our passage, it's those last two points that come into play. Why did, Jesus, why did God send Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh? Because it was human nature that sinned. It was human nature that had to be punished. We could not put a real lamb on the cross and call it atonement. We could not take any other creature in the world and put it on the cross and call it atonement. It was human beings that had sinned. It was a human being that must be condemned. And so God sent His Son as a human being. This is still mysterious to me. I don't claim to completely understand all this, but listen to Hebrews 2.14. Since, therefore, the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus had to become a man because it was man that had sinned against God. And then the other point here is that he had to be a sinless man. In the law of God... I could not go to the cross for you. You could not go to the cross for me because of our own sins to be dealt with. It had to be a sinless person. Psalm 49, 7-8, through 8, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of His life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. So it's blatantly said in the Bible, no sinful human being can make atonement for another sinful human being before God. And so Jesus had to be blameless. So, in closing, God has done what the law could not do. He made a way for sinners to be counted right in His sight. How? First, He sent His Son. We'll see the second part tonight. But I want you to to close this morning by noticing those two words that Paul added in. For sin. Why did God send His Son? Because of sin. It is sin that separated us from God. It was sin that made us God's enemy. It was sin that caused the law of God to be against us, condemning us. Why did Jesus have to come as a human being and suffer unimaginable agony? It was for sin. And so church, let us see in these verses the terribleness of our sin. And let us see in these verses the wonder of the love of God. These are two truths that need to shape our lives, the heinousness of our sin, and the great merciful love of God in Jesus Christ. That will make you a humble, joyful person. Hold on to those both. I am a great sinner, but God through Christ is a greater Savior. Let's pray.